Alright, good evening. It's really nice to see everyone this evening. Hope everyone is going to have a, a good week for God. We're going to be in Exodus 24. Exodus 24. We're just going to dive right into it. We're continuing our sermon series that coincides with our class, kind of picking up the crumbs of Exodus, if you will. And Justin had a great class this morning in Exodus 20, kind of going over the foundation of the law, going through those first 10 commandments, and just that foundation there of the Old Testament. But we're going to be in Exodus 24, which kind of bookends Exodus 19. Those two go hand in hand, both talking about this covenant. But before we jump into there, those that don't know, we'll give a backstory. For those who don't remember, the Israelites, they were in slavery by the Egyptians, and now they're headed toward a promised land that God is, is giving them. But they have to go through this wilderness, and here in Exodus 24, they're at Mount Sinai. And God is giving them laws. He's establishing a covenant. He's telling them, hey, these are my people. He's creating a nation and a kingdom of priests. He's finalizing this covenant in Exodus 24. But even further than that, what this chapter is really about is worship. It's about worshiping God. And for the Jewish people, this is a fundamental chapter when it comes to worshiping God. And the same can be said for us today. Now, obviously, the things that are practiced in Exodus 24 are not going to be the same that we do today, but the principles still apply. In fact, a lot of what Nate talked about this morning is what we're going to talk about tonight, continuing that idea of worship and worship to God. And so it's kind of like part two. Hopefully, hopefully that's all right. But when we think of worship, usually we're thinking of two things. One, our daily worship, when we're worshiping God and how we interact with others. We see that commanded in Romans 12 and verses 1 through 2. And what we're doing tonight and this morning, worshiping God together as commanded in Hebrews 10. But what we're going to talk about is more of the why. Why are we here? We've all heard the sermons about what we're doing, but why even worship God? Why God? And that's what we're going to talk about. Just think about how encouraging it is to be here together, worshiping God with others that love God. And that brings so much more joy and hope into our hearts. We can gather around and we read Psalms, like Psalm 95, verse 6, which encourages us. O come, it says, let us, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And that just reminds us that, hey, we're not alone, that we have a maker that cares about us, people that support us. We're connected by his spirit. We have a purpose as members of his body, of Christ's body, and we're here focusing on Jesus. And so we open up our Bibles to Exodus 24, and we look at verses 1 through 2. And the Israelites are called to worship, just as we are called to worship, and it acts as a great example. Starting with verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. God 
what we often find is that God doesn't hide himself. And we can make that mistake in thinking that we're playing hide and seek with God and God is just hiding and he's stuck in a closet and he's dormant. And that's not the God that we see when we read the scriptures. The God that we see is active. He's in the lives of his people. He makes himself known. He says, here I am. Join me. Come to me. Look again at verse 1. What does it say? Moses here, he and the rest of the leaders, God says, come up to the Lord. Come to me, he says. God, you see, he knows his creation. He knows what they need. He he knows what his people, especially his people, need from him. He makes himself known. Doesn't hide himself, but he desires for all his people to be with him. So whether we are down and we're depressed, or if we're joyful, whatever extreme, wherever we're at in life, God wants us to be with him. The gospel is not some sort of invisible ink conspiracy theory, and we can follow the clues and pick up the crumbs, and just just maybe we might find the truth. It's not like that. It is plain for all those with a soft heart and a listening ear. I love Acts 17. Acts 17, Paul is talking to the Athenians, and he's talking about this unknown God that they are worshiping, and they're trying to find, and they can't find, hence it's unknown. And he says, no, God, he created all this. He started all this, as it says in verse 27, so that they should seek God. In the hope that they might feel, they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he, he says, is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is near and active and here. And the question is, is our life going to be active for God? He's near, not far. And now you may be wondering, well, He just doesn't seem to be listening. He doesn't seem to be active. He doesn't seem to be listening to my prayers or answering my prayers. And that may, that may seem to be true at times. It may seem that way, but that doesn't mean that God isn't active and working in our lives. Take, for example, the people of ex, the people Israelites, the people we read in Exodus, since they're kind of our focal point tonight. When they're in slavery, and they're in slavery for generations, they were pleading with God, praying to God for deliverance. And from their perspective, it seemed like God wasn't there. Like he wasn't listening. But that's not true because later we know that God tells Moses, look, I have heard the cries of my people. And so during those cries, God was safely leading his people toward deliverance. God was raising up a deliverer. God was just right. He was, God was delivering Moses to deliver them from slavery, guiding him down the Nile, raising him up in in the household of Pharaoh, so that he gets the experiences that he needs. And so he's working. He's working even when it may not seem like it. And he calls us. And that may mean that we have to be patient. And he deserves our patience. God deserves our patience. God deserves our praise and our worship, no matter the place, the time, or the moment. Again, we live and we move and our being is in him, as we read in Acts 17. So we go to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verse 2, talking about Moses here, and he's telling him, look, 
Come near to the Lord. And Moses is often this Christ figure that we see where he acts as a mediator between God and God's people. But we don't need a Moses today because Jesus is our mediator. And Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 5. God, our Savior, who desires, it says, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Because of Jesus, like Moses, God calls us to be near to him, to worship him. And that's ultimately the call in Exodus 24. God is saying, look, come to me. And then they what? They worship him. Life is so much more meaningful when we live for God, as Nate talked about this morning, when we're worshiping God, when we give him our attention and our effort and 100% of our life. I mean, they're going through this wilderness, they're climbing this mountain, and they're doing it for God. Are we willing to live this life, to climb our mountain, to be with God? That's ultimately the motivation, the desire behind our worship. The desire should be to get near to God so that we can be with Him and that we will be with Him for eternity. The thing is, Moses is not doing this alone. God calls Moses and the leaders there in verse 1, the leaders to worship from afar, it says. Let, let alone, look at the people here of Israel. They're witnessing all this happening. They're at the base of the mountain, and they're giving God his attention, their attention, worshiping him. And so God calls all, and his desire is, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, his desire is for all to be saved. His desire is for all to come to the knowledge of the truth. The desire for all people, all sinners, whether the afflicted, the needy, the oppressed, the sad, the poor, and it continues in Exodus 24. Look at verses 3 through 8. That idea continues when it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. A large and very important aspect of worship is togetherness. We have to remember, what is this chapter all about? They're establishing here a covenant, a covenant between God and his people, making them a kingdom of priests. But as Nate made the point this morning, God doesn't need people. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need a nation. He doesn't need priests. We can't add to his glory. But what God does know is that God knows that we need worship. We need to worship him. That we need God and we also need each other. A great testimony when it comes to worship is being here for each other, focusing on God. So many people these days just kind of drag themselves and their family, making it a chore to come to worship, an obligation, or you know, just wanting to find some sort of entertainment. But that's not the case. While, yes, it may be a benefit to us personally and spiritually to worship, it's about serving and service, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, asking, you know, what wisdom can I gain from God, and how can I then serve that, serve my family with that wisdom? 
that creates a desire to want to actually be here because our love for God fuels our love for one another. So you look at verse 4 again, and what is Moses doing with those words? He's writing those words down. He's writing them down, and I'm not saying you have to rescribe the whole Bible, although that's what my mom made me do as a punishment, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> but the point is, you know, most people are like, I will not punch my brother in the face hundred times. She's like, you write the Proverbs down in cursive. So a little, little hint to the parents there. I'm just kidding. The point is they're gathering wisdom and they're gathering wisdom from God's words and they don't want to forget it. They don't want to lose it. They don't want to not apply it in their life. It's important to write these things down, and that is what Moses is doing. In fact, we need to be the same way when it comes to the Scriptures. These are words that hold truth and value and guidance. And so I'm going to take these these words and this wisdom, I'm going to apply it to my life because this wisdom is going to help me grow and is going to help me connect with my brothers and sisters in Christ even deeper. They're literally connecting with each other when they they cry out in one voice. They're connecting with, with each other when they do that. And what are they connecting over? They're connecting over what God says, over his words. And God's words are a direct reflection of who he is. And so when people say, well, I don't really believe in, I believe in God, but it's just because it makes me a good and it makes me a good and moral person. Or I believe in God because it fits a certain ideology and it's nice and convenient. But going to church, that's just really not my jam. I don't really get much out of it. And what's our usual response to that? Our usual response is, well, what are you putting into it? And that's fine. That's a good response. It's a good question to ask. But a deeper, a deeper response, a better question is, is what effort are you putting into the people there? So many people these days are trying to find this spiritual awakening. And so they go to church and they're hoping to find it in a snippet of a sermon or a song. And if it doesn't work within church, it must not be for them. But the thing is, the thing is a spiritual awakening or transformation It doesn't happen alone. It happens through the power of God and the people that God is calling through himself, to himself, through his words. When we're baptized, are we doing that ourselves? No. Someone is there baptizing us. A covenant takes two. Transportation, transportation, transformation, it takes more than just ourselves. It takes more than just ourselves. And so as it says in verse 3, look at that passage with one voice it says, one voice they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. One voice implies unity. And usually that's where we stop. Well, the church, it should be unified. And it should be unified. But take, for example, our country now. It's unified. But is it connected? Is it connected? We should be unified as a church. The same principle applies, but even further than that, we should be unified in truth and spirit, as Jesus says in John 4, 23, where he says, worshipers, worshipers that worship in truth and spirit are the type of worshipers that God is desiring. Those are the people that he is seeking. That unity, that unity in spirit is connecting with God with one heart and one mind and one soul. That unity in the truth is looking toward the truth, toward Jesus Christ. It's not just unity that is genuine. It's a family you see that knows each other. 
It's a family that knows each other. One voice can only agree, as it says in Exodus 24, verse 3, on what all God has spoken when they know each other, when they're working together to know their creator even more. So jump ahead and look at verse 7 of Exodus 24. It just reiterates what we're talking about. Look, he, he said, he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. We read that and we have to ask, what are some of the things that we have to do or that we need to do as a unified body in order to connect with our brothers and sisters, to connect in worship? And that may mean having a difficult conversation that we don't walk away from. We actually push through in love. We don't walk away in spite. That may mean going and forgiving our brother and sister. That may mean helping them out when they're in need. These are examples that we see in Scripture that if accomplished can give us a greater worship together. Again, what did they say? All these things we will do. We might do? No, they said we will do them. But in order to connect with God, And our brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to make sacrifices. Let's keep reading in Exodus 24. Go back a few verses, 4 through 8. It says, He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he he sent young men and people of Israel who offered burnt offerings, sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses is, for one, he's he's getting up early and make these sacrifices. Not saying you have to get up early. But look at the heart of Moses here. The first thing that he does, he does for God. He works for God. His whole life is about God, and that is something that we should strive for. Ultimately, a life for God is a life of joy where we can rejoice. That may mean getting rid of some of the distractions in our life, some of the things that distract us from God, from Jesus, whatever that may be for you, whether that be you know, news or your phone. Those are just easy, easy examples to kind of jog our memory. But ask yourself, What is the first thing I'm thinking about when I wake up? We look at this passage, and they're making a covenant. They're making a covenant that's meant to to make them different from all the other nations and all the other kingdoms. And they look at this passage, and there should be a certain level of joy because now God is their king. Moses completes this sacrifice here. They proceed to throw blood on the altar. They give their allegiance in verse 7 and read verse 8 again, where it says, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, and this is key, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then the covenant is finalized. I know during sacrifices, those things aren't very fun. But sacrifices can, they can be painful, but they lead to a future joy. We're giving up something now for something greater in return. 
what is difficult at first only leads to a future joy. And we saw that with God's sacrifice when Jesus was dying. What a painful experience that was, but it led to a greater joy for all who answer that call and follows God. Right there at the beginning of that verse, this is a call for celebration. They're, they're entering this covenant with God, and it says, he ends the verse with, Behold, the blood of the covenant. For the Israelites, that is huge. But this covenant is only foreshadowing the covenant that is to come with Jesus. The new covenant that we have with the blood that was shed on the cross for us. We keep reading in Exodus 24. Look at verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 says, Then Moses and Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, we don't know how much of God they saw, what level of glory. We do know it wasn't as much as what Moses saw, but still, to whatever degree, verse 10 is a powerful statement. They saw the God of Israel. In verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. And the ancient world, if, if they ate and drank, they're celebrating. They're celebrating here this new covenant, a feast that's the symbol of their joy. It's very similar to the meal that we took just a second ago, that we took at the, this morning, the Lord's Supper. We remember during that time the salvation that Jesus brought us and the covenant that was established in that sacrifice. And so you look at verse 11, little detail. Notice God did not lay his hand on them, on the, on the chief men, and said he desired them to live and to worship and to worship him. And that is a parallel of our salvation and what he desires of us. And that should bring us joy. An example of this is found in John chapter 2. Let's turn to John chapter 2. This is during a wedding feast where people should be happy and overjoyed about a marriage in their community, a new covenant. John chapter 2. Keep your marker in Exodus 24, but look at John chapter 2 verse 1. Where it says in verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You know, a wedding is supposed to be a moment of joy, ideally. 
But not if you can, in this situation, can't provide for your guest. The thing about Jesus in this situation is he provided in a way that no one else could. Jesus fixed their problem, saved them from this catastrophe. What he does in this wedding or this wedding feast is he not just not only fixes it, but he makes it better. He turns what's old into new, and in the same way, he redeems us. Through salvation, he's able to bring joy back into our lives. Because of his sacrifice, we're able to have everlasting joy. So we can behold God, and we can say, this, this is my Savior. If we we do that without Jesus, we, we can't accomplish that. And we end up like these empty jars of purification where there's nothing left in our life, and it's empty, and it's not going to turn into anything new. Those jars, look at verse 6. They are jars, ironically, of purification. Remember the blood that Moses just threw onto the people there? That was uh, the purity so that they could enter into that covenant with God. And later, Jesus establishes a new covenant in Matthew 26, verse 27, where with the wine, he takes the cup and says, he took the cup, this is on the Passover before his death, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, direct quote, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And again later, John the Apostle and writer clarifies in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Remember that togetherness? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship with one another is an example of one voice recognizing all that Jesus did for us. The sin that he cleansed us of. The call then is to live pure lives with joy, to walk in the light as he is in the light. This is the God that we are called to worship every week. And we aren't alone in doing it. We are together and we find joy in our Savior. Look again at the God we worship in Exodus 24 as we close. Exodus 24, verses 15 through 18. Has a lot of the same wordage and terminology that we read in Psalm 50 this morning. Because of Jesus, this is what we had to look forward to. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on the mountain, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. People are scared. And what does Moses do? Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days with God and 40 nights. Are we willing to trust God? To put aside our fears and walk into the midst of the cloud to be with God? The only way to do that is we're purified through Jesus. If you haven't done that, if you haven't accepted Jesus, that's the call this evening, is to come near to God as he called the Israelites and he calls us today. The desire is to be with him. That's why we're baptized. And then the purified with his blood that we read just a second ago, the blood of the covenant, right? Moses threw that blood on the people and he said, this is the blood of the covenant. And Jesus literally says later, The blood that I shed on the cross, the pain that I went through, it's the blood of the covenant. Don't look at that blood and look at it in vain and think of it as nothing because it is everything to us and everything to you. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. So that is your desire this evening. Come forward now.
while we stand and we sing.